Welcome back. I'm glad to be joined today by Fluffy Pony ZA on this episode of Unconfirmed Transactions. I'm your host, Dan Anderson of the Bitcoin Clan, the Bitcoin League, and the Crypto Illuminati, as well as a lifelong resident troll of all internet-connected devices. If the audio quality of this episode isn't very good, well, that's pretty much par for this podcast. But just so you know, today's audio is a live recorded international phone call, so you get what you get. All right, Ricardo, I think I'm done with the intro bits. Let's get into it. How are you? I'm fantastic, and how are you? I'm also very well. I've been up all night, but I think that's just sort of like not unusual for the sort of computer types to work odd hours <laughs> at uh, weird lengths, you know? Yeah. Do you yourself find yourself working weird hours sometimes? Yeah, I am... Um... I have a tendency to sort of uh, to crunch away in the morning because um, you know it's the morning and like most most of the people I interact with are asleep um, you know, sort of my morning and uh, and then I take a little bit of a break late afternoon evening you know spend time with the wife so that like I don't get in trouble and uh, and then like come the evening I just go until like three o'clock in the morning and I. You know, like I'm, I'm, I get into some like work buzz, and I, I can't stop. Yep, yep, uh, uh, same way. You get like in the zone. Yeah. So I, I wanna, I wanna start our discussion. Um, it's a concept I've seen you talk about in the past. You recently talked about it at the on-chain scaling conference, which is basically like an online conference where there was a number of um, kind of webinar-like uh, talks. And I think Jerry, um, people who are in the dojo and who Jerry is, I think Jerry is uh, crucial in the organization of that event. But basically the concept yeah. is uh, CONOP. Uh, and CONOP or the cost of node option, something that Paul Sports talks about. You've done this presentation. I'll drop links in the, in the description. But I bring it up um, because I've, I've noticed that Many of the metrics in blockchain are made up. For example, block time, difficulty, mining reward rate. These are metrics that are internal to these systems and novel ideas. But CONOP is like a separate concept. It's external, and we can apply it to the system. It's not a concern with the protocol or any white paper explicitly for the most part, but it's, it's pretty useful. It's something governments and militaries employ in a different way. They use CONOP to mean concept of operation, but it's similar, similarly applied here. And so when I think about it, and as we'll talk about it and explain it here, it seems to be almost a better approach to thinking about scaling. Um, would you agree with that, or is that kind of too 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 soon to say? Yeah, I think um, you know when we're talking about scaling Bitcoin, we're talking about um, a scaling main chain. You know, the, the sort of uh, I'm hesitant to call it a settlement there, but you know, that sort of main blockchain there. We're not talking about level two systems like Lightning Network in this context. Um, and and Conop, I think, I agree with you. It's a, it's a, a really useful metric because you don't actually need to care about anyone else's Conop. You can evaluate it for yourself and say, you know, like, like is it justifiable for me to run a node? Um, like, what's the co what is my cost of node option? And if a bunch of people did that and then sat down in a room and discussed their cost of node option, um, they'll find that uh, by and large there's a, a sort of uh, there's a minimum line somewhere that can't be crossed. 
I like uh, I also like the idea of CONOP in that um, a lot of people talk about governance um, and generally, like, I don't care to talk about that. I like to talk about um, this is something that was brought up at an MIT uh, event. But basically, somebody suggested, and I'll drop a link to this guy. I forget his name, but he said that um, we should talk about like the health of the ecosystem versus governance. And I think CONOP kind of gets into that. Like, yeah. it's not a governance question. It's like, is the system working for me and for everyone generally? Yeah, because if you can, if you can. Um, determine whether it's working for you in some sort of objective manner, um, even though you know your situation is different to everyone else's, then you can apply the same object or everyone can apply the same objectivity to their situation. And and you know the health of the ecosystem requires um, or the Bitcoin ecosystem at any rate requires multiple in, independent participants in as many jurisdictions as possible. And you're not a participant if you're running the Electrum or using a web wallet. Interesting. Yeah. I, I know a lot of, I know like Tails, for example. Tails is the amnesiac, amnesiatic uh, operating system that a lot of people use. Um, comes with Electrum. But Electrum, like you said, is not, um, it's, well, it's not a full node. Yeah, and, and so, to make it worse, um, as, a, as somebody who has an Electrum node, um, or you know, Electrum server, um, it, it actually it, it's kind of taxing. You know, it's expensive to run an Electrum server, and there are so few donations that people make that it's, you're basically running it at your own cost. So the more users something like Electrum has, the more expensive it becomes for us poor server operators, and uh, and the more sort of taxing it is on the system. Uh, on the health of the ecosystem because it's all volunteer-driven. Well, as as a uh, as a speculator, like the 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 uh, the reason that I don't run a node is is pretty obvious. It's like someone else will run that for me. <laughs> it's not a cost I want to bear. Yeah, exactly. uh, that's, it's, it's a tough it's a it's a it's a tough nut in that way. But it's like of course, like speculators would have that opinion. They they have a lot of their money on exchanges, anyways. Um, but what I want to talk about when I brought up CONOP, like the end goals, I would love to hear you talk about the CONOP specific to Monero, like who's like what are the costs, who's paying them, how, why, just like kind of spitball on that. I'd love to hear what you think. Sure. You know, like, so so with Monero, it, um, our CONOP is slightly different because firstly, um, running a Monero node is always and always, but it's currently more expensive than running a, a Bitcoin node in a sense. Because even though our blockchain is smaller and there's significantly less activity, um, the physical size of transactions is larger than Bitcoin. Um, it, it's smaller than Bitcoin's on a like-to-like basis, but because you end up with so many signatures to obscure the origin of the transaction, our average transaction ends up being physically larger than Bitcoin. At the same time, there's a much larger um, reason or, or impetus to run a Monero full node, um, and it's because you want maximum privacy. And if you're not running a full node, you're shelving off your privacy to my Monero or you know the web wallet or to an exchange or whatever, and that's kind of pointless. So, so I think we have a, a slightly different um, con up to, to Bitcoin. And I would imagine over time, 
um, if Monero's trajectory continues and we don't royally mess up um, privacy-enhancing aspects of it, then the only reason that people will use it is for transactional privacy. And so the, that, uh, that reason to run a full node, that desire um, to run a full node, will only increase over time and should help to offset the increased costs of, um, of running a node. And are most of the nodes currently also miners, or are there people running nodes that aren't mining? Is there any way to tell that? On the uh, yeah, no, there's no there's no real way to tell that. Um, but I mean, the the there, there really aren't any solo miners like anymore. You know, virtually everyone uses a mining pool, and there are only a handful of mining pools, but between 500 and 2,000 nodes. So um, I, you know, I think it's safe to say that the, the majority of people running full nodes are doing so um, for their own reason or their own purposes. Interesting. And so, I mean, of course, what everyone will know um, that recently there's been a rise in the price of Monero, like somewhere between two dollars, somewhere around that, to near twelve dollars. So it was like oh, wow. before this time, whatever it was, whatever the the rise was. But anyways, I'm sure if you as somebody that like, has a high visibility in the Monero community has been getting a lot of inquiries, maybe some questions from side channels. And I'm wondering if that gives you any insights into like the depth of the crypto market generally, or not even specific to the depth, but like what has the experience been like? Like is your life carrying on normally or are you ruthlessly masturbating to the value of Monero as denominated in Bitcoin? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So so it's it's, kind of, it's been kind of an interesting experience the past couple of weeks. I mean, really, it's, it's, uh, we're talking about an explosion in interest of, uh, in interest of Monero um, coupled with this increase in price. On the one hand, it's really cool and flattering that suddenly there are all these people that are interested in the project. On the other hand, it's kind of disappointing that um, the interest, a lot of the interest comes from an increase in price, like an increase in price somehow um, defines good photography. Um, so it's actually a little bit disheartening that uh, that we were ignored by so many people um, until this price rise. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I, I understand it. I mean, I, I get that people don't have the time and energy to look at uh, all the possible um, solutions and then um, go, well, you know, this one looks slightly better than the next one. Um, and they're sort of reliant on, I guess, the markets to indicate that to them. Um, and the market, do, by and large, the market has indicated that Monero is worth taking a glance at. So that's kind of cool. Um, we have also seen along with this, uh, this price rise, although this is something that's been building over the past, I'd say, four to six weeks, We've seen a huge uptick in contributors. Um, you know, lots of lots of new people like uh, looking at the code, um, opening issues on GitHub, uh, even submitting pull requests for the first time. Um, and that's kind of nice too because uh, we're an unfunded open source project, and we die without um, without new contributors, um, and obviously not existing ones carrying on as well. So so that's um, 
that's kind of awesome because that's pretty much the only way Monero will uh, will inc- improve its usability and usefulness is by these independent um, contributors hacking away at the code. So, I, you know, it's sort of a bit of a double-edged sword, but all in all, it's um, it's on the whole net positive. Oh, interesting. I, I think... Uh... Do you know who Trace Mayer is? One of the things he says about cryptocurrencies is that, the, and I think he's right on this, is that the first network effect of them like might be speculation. I think that might be what you're experiencing oh, yeah. now. It's like, yeah. like uh, it kind of bootstraps it. And then I think one of the, I think I noticed like Gregory Maxwell was making contributions to Monero, maybe not to the code base, but at least to like theoretically. Uh, uh, Vladimir, Vladimir Lon was, not, not uh, Greg. Oh, Greg, okay. Greg has done amazing work with confidential transactions, which um, we use as a foundation for our UCT um, signature scheme. So, so yeah, I mean, we we get a lot of input and uh, insight from um, Bitcoin uh, developers and academics as well, um, which has really been helpful. So that you just touched on something that I think a lot of people are when they hear about Monero, they hear about ring signatures. They don't know a lot about it. Most people aren't cryptographers. I am not either. So um, my understanding of a ring signature is that rather than and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a setup where rather than a strict one-to-one public-private key pair, you can instead sign messages that are basically salted with several public keys without revealing which one of those private public-private key pairs was actually doing the signing in that transaction? Is that how it works, or can you expand on that? Um, okay, so, so you know, ring signatures as a signature scheme, yes. You, you know, you, let's say you've got a, a document, and um, it's signed, it appears to be signed by um, Chris, Joseph, and you. And uh, we look at this document and we go, well, it appears to have valid signatures from Chris, Joseph, and Dan. And they, Dan. <laughs> well, that's just a problem with myself. Let me try that again. Um, but you look at the document and, and even though it appears to have these three valid signatures, you can't tell um, which of the three actually signed it. And it doesn't require all three to collude or to be in the same place at the same time or to have any sort of like um, shared resource, you know, you're able to sign effectively on behalf of these other people. Um, and that's really powerful for certain types of governance and that sort of thing. The, the application to um, cryptocurrency is, of course, quite unique and novel. Um, and which, the way it works if you think about Bitcoin transactions, you've got outputs, and then later on, um, you're going to you take an output and you spend it, and you spend it by using it as an input, and uh, and so that's what gives you that um, that sort of tracking on the blockchain that you can on the, on, a, on the Bitcoin blockchain that you can see the movement of transactions is because outputs are being spent as inputs in later transactions, and uh, with Monero string signatures, the way it works is. Um, an input appears to come from several outputs, and you can't tell which of those outputs it really came from. Interesting. Um, so when you're creating those transactions, um, you basically, 
you're allowed to kind of throw in other people's public keys without their permission. Is that right? Yeah. Is so anyone's public keys are available to you? Their, their outputs. Yeah. You're, you're looking at the blockchain, and you're saying, um, I'm going to use the outputs from these old transactions and new transactions plus mine. And uh, you're not doing it with their um, permission. You're not doing it with their help. The, the people that signed those old outputs don't even know you're doing it. So the advantage, of course, is that you can do it completely offline. You don't have to um, interact with anyone online. And so that makes small attacks um, impossible because, not impossible, but extremely hard. I mean, you'd have to go in like 80% of the outputs on the chain. Um, and uh, it also means that the possible mixing is growing with every single transaction. Um, which means the entropy grows with every single transaction. Well, when you when you when you mentioned that, I actually want to ask about entropy. So, like, is it when those other public keys are grabbed? Like, how is that done? Like, is, do do I get to select the public keys I choose? Is there randomness there? Where does that randomness come from? Um, is it optional? Is it could it be done many different ways? So the you know what um, I mean? The, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. The output selection, in other words, the selection of outputs that you're going to mix, uh, mix mm -hmm. and I'm using mix as a, a sort of term to explain it, but the selection of outputs you're going to um, include in your ring signature is, um, firstly, it's mandatory. There's a minimum of um, of three, uh, you know, on, a, on each input. Um, so that means you plus two others. Uh, and you can't opt out of it. You can't, um, uh, you know, you, you can't ignore it. You can't do anything like that. The um, distribution is not, uh, it is triangular distribution. So it's, um, we do that so that newer outputs are favored, or at least a little bit skewed, so that if people are spending funds they've recently received, um, it, it makes it slightly less obvious. Uh, but that said, the distribution is on the client side. So, like, ostensibly, you could take, um, you know, you could take the existing uh, simple wallet or, or Monero wallet, TLI wallet uh, client, and change the distribution to whatever you want because the distribution is not enforced at the protocol level. Okay, that makes sense. I, that, that's a good response to that question. Because um, I, I mean, I don't know a lot about Monero, but like. Now I've been looking at it a little bit more, trying to understand it, and I think that's a good explanation. It's interesting because I know a lot. I know of some people with older Bitcoin who have concerns about moving that Bitcoin because by moving it, it would be like, you know, because of its like coin age or whatever, it would be sort of um, looked at with more scrutiny than a more recent transaction might be. So I think it's interesting that you have this yeah, built in there. Yeah, so people people take um, take things like Bitcoin Day is destroyed as a market indicator. Like, oh, if someone moves all Bitcoin, maybe they're going to dump them on the market. They're going to panic. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's it's kind of silly, but at the same time, um, I, I can completely understand why somebody might have um, some sort of uh, uh, resistance with moving their old funds. And with Monero, that's impossible um, because you never know whether the old funds are just being randomly included um, in a ring signature, or whether someone's genuinely spending the outputs. 
So let's uh, let's kick off the the, the, the nitty gritty tech stuff, more to the community stuff. Um, understandably, you and other Monero contributors have created recently some community guidelines on the Monero subreddit, and I think Stack Exchange is what it's called. Um, basically, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically specific use case discussions are banned because a privacy-conscious currency may, has many uses, and the discussion of which might bring unwanted scrutiny to open-source contributors. So how has that decision made? How has it been received? And are you the thymos of our Monero? <laughs> so, um, okay, so, so perhaps a little bit of Monero's history um, needs, to, needs to be discussed so that, that you understand how things came about. Sure, sure, um, yeah, let's hear it. Monero, cool. So Monero wasn't launched by me or uh, created by me or um, any members of the Monero core team. Um, Monero was launched by a guy called Tanko for today um, on Bitcoin Talk. Uh, and it was pretty fairly launched. I mean, he had a, a pre-announcement, and uh, when it was launched, there were binaries available for the major operating systems and so on. Um, and uh, sort of a, a few days after launch, um, we, and by we, I mean members of the community, discovered that uh, the hashing function used for mining um, was crippled, for want of a better term. There was a value computed inside of a loop, and it only needed to be computed once, but it was computed thousands of times inside this loop. And so literally by just taking it one line of code and moving it outside the loop, we had like a 10 times speed up in, in mining speed. And uh, the, it's, it's pretty clear that that was done um, on purpose, but it was caught so early on, um, and there were no sort of weird block reward snafus that, um, you know, like, especially as somebody who, who mined right at the beginning, I can tell you that I don't think the uh, thankful for today got away with more than, you know, a couple of hundred Monero with its faster miner. Uh, at any rate, that would really put it around an edge because it was like, well, you know, what is this crippled code doing there? which is kind of weird. Um, and, uh, and then to make matters worse, thankful for today, decided that what he really wanted to do was make Monero merge mine with Bitcoin, which was this weird scam. And um, the community said, well, no, we don't want that. And then there was this whole argument over, over it, and we ended up going to like a block vote um, where miners voted on it. And thankful for today, set the default vote to yes instead of setting it to like an abstain vote. So, you know, there, there were all these things that happened that just made it dodgier and dodgier to the community. Um, and then when the vote ended up not being in its favor, he just kind of wanted to barrel ahead and do it anyway. And that was the point at which everyone was like, well, this guy's not a team player. And uh, we forked the, the code away um, from him and the community followed us, and by us, I mean the seven people that ended up forming the Monero core team, because we realized that if we were going to fork it away from him um, and, uh, you know, set up new resources and all that jazz, that we needed to have um, a loose collective of individuals that would at least be in charge of, you know, the passwords to the GitHub repo, and that sort of thing. Hmm. 
And so we ended so there's up. A little, there's um, a little coup, de, coup d'état of sorts. Yeah, there, there's a, there was a little coup d'état, and you know the nice thing about that is, firstly, it taught us that um, you you are never really in control of anything, and that if you mess stuff up, that the community can just repeat that same process and take it away from you. Um, and the other thing is that. Um, it uh, it gave us the ability to um, uh, to to work with a fresh code base that wasn't um, stuff that wasn't based on Bitcoin at all, um, and to really like experiment and play with cool ideas. Um, so sort of fast forward to now, uh, we're you know we're now two and a half years later. Um, we've had some movements within the core team. Um, two people have left and two. Uh, others have replaced them, but there's still seven members of the core team. And our role is just stewardship of the, really of the repo and uh, of the repos and some of the other project resources, the website and that sort of thing. But that's all we do. You know, some of us also work on the code, like I'm the, um, I'm the maintainer, uh, the project maintainer as well. But those are separate roles to what the core team does. Um, now, we have a governance model where we basically let the community make decisions. And uh, there's something called loose consensus where we, um, you know, we'll, everything will be open up for discussion. And then if there's general consensus um, amongst the community, even if there are a couple of people that are throwing up, we consider that a decision made. If there is, um, if it's not clear and if there's sort of contra- controversy or the community that can't come to a decision, then and only then would the core team um, have a, a discussion, again, a discussion that is made public um, and uh, and votes on it to make a decision, like to sort of uh, release the gridlock. Um, but I'm don't, sure don't, really don't, doesn't, uh, isn't, um, isn't there a set schedule for hard forking with Monero? Isn't that a thing? Yes, yes. Yeah. Isn't that also part of your governance structure? So, like, it's not a question of, like, should we or shouldn't we fork? It's, like, what will we fork? Um, yeah, so the forking thing is uh, is really just a um, – to, to get everyone – especially because Monero is so young and uh, there's so much potential for, for breaks and that sort of thing. Um, the forking thing is is just to sort of keep the entire network in sync. So, I don't know if um, – if you recall, when uh, Bitcoin had a um, uh, had a, an issue many years ago, where there was a the network forked, um, and it was due to a bug in uh, Berkeley DB in, in 32 bit versions of Berkeley DB, um, which limited uh, had a size limit in, um, in certain fields, and basically the the there was a block that was accepted by 64 bit versions of Berkeley DB. And by level DB, and then a bunch of nodes in the network rejected that block because they were running um, 32 bit Berkeley DB. Um, and basically, like, like this, that sort of thing um, is the sort of thing we want to avoid. So, with the mandatory hard forks, what we're really doing is just forcing everyone to, uh, to run roughly the same version over a period of time so that any bugs that exist in an older version um, don't end up forking people off the network. Sure. Yeah. 
but, but let's get let's get back to whether or not you are a thigh mouth or not. <laughs> like, how, so how did this, but like, because you start you started giving me this long history, but like, uh, you know, there's been some community guidelines which make a lot of sense to me. But has there been? I mean, how was that received? Uh, I mean, what do you think? Um, it's it's been pretty it's been pretty well received, you know. And I think like so, it's a, it's a decision the court team took very early on because we obviously looked at it and we were like, well, guys, like. You know, at some point, someone's going to use Monero for something stupid. Um, and and when I say stupid, I'm not implying that the current uh, uses are stupid, but it's just it's, someone's going to use the phone to attract the wrong sort of attention. And um, you know, it's, it's it's important for us at any rate to focus on the software because that's really all we're doing is writing software. Um, we're not building a brand, and we're not. Um, answering specific use cases, and we're not canvassing people on Twitter to accept Monero on, you know, whatever, contributions or donations for WikiLeaks. All we're doing is building software. And, uh, and so the community, I think, respects that, and they understand that. And so there wasn't really an issue when we had to put our foot down and say, you know, discussions of those specific, of, of darknet market use cases are just not really on on the subreddit and the forum and the Stack Exchange because hey, there are a bunch of places where you can discuss that already. Yep. So uh, yeah, so that's I mean that's pretty well covered. I, I want to talk about some other stuff now. Um, so when I think about Monero or any cryptocurrency, the problem seems this seems like a big problem. The the on ramp on off ramp into fiat land. So basically like liquidity, but like getting but beyond liquidity, like getting your cryptocurrency back into fiat. I think in the early days of Bitcoin, people like Charlie Shrem ended up picking up big risk for Bitcoin early on, providing such a service, and got hit with it like pretty hard. Um, and it seems like a lot of cryptocurrencies are relying on Bitcoin's infrastructure to de- decompose their value back into fiat. Um, and I think that's got to be the same with Monero. So the question I have is, um, does, the, does Monero's protocol-level privacy assurance uh, get peeled away slightly during this trip back to fiat? Like, what does that look like? Because you mentioned earlier, um, if you don't, aren't running your own Monero nodes, you, you already are losing some level of privacy. But there's even more um, issues in terms of, like, privacy reduction or, like, peeling back the layers of privacy once you try to decompose your Monero back into, like, a, a local fiat. So um, that seems like a big problem to me. What do you, what, what's the um, landscape there for Monero? Um, yeah, so look, I think the, there are a couple of aspects to it. The first is um, there will be fiat markets that exist, uh, you know, fiat exchanges and then like a local Bitcoin equivalent. Um, I mean, there really is one. And, uh, and you've also got um, decentralized exchanges um, like uh, BitSquare. BitSquare um, support Monero they have for a little while. There isn't massive liquidity on there, but the liquidity will come if there is demand. So, and, and BitSquare also supports going, um, you know, going into in and out of various fiat systems, uh, yeah, fiat rails. I think, um, again, the, a lot of the stuff comes with uh, maturity and time and legitimate use cases. Um, it's going to be tricky to to have a whole bunch of fiat rails in and out of Monero uh, when people, the only thing people know about it is oh yes I heard people buy drugs with it 
Um, when meanwhile, the reason, main reason Monero exists is because if you pay someone, why should they be able to tell what your bank balance is? So I think the, um, I think this is the sort of thing that, ha- that changes over time. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, the, the nice thing is because Monero provides this untraceability and unlinkability uh, once you're on the chain, then it doesn't really matter that you bought a bunch of Monero with identifiable fiat on an exchange because what you did with it thereafter is impossible to know. And, and obviously I'm using terms like impossible um, quite loosely. It's impossible within some cryptographically negligible amount of risk. Sure. Yeah, I mean, well, that actually gets into sort of the last things I want to talk about is, um, so for fungibility is becoming a much more hot topic lately. I think maybe spurred on by Monero, uh, but also just by other things. I know some, some Dutchies uh, are really excited about this development. But anyways, um, it seems to me that you can't prevent people from analyzing a permissionless open blockchain. Uh, like you, you can't prevent people from analyzing it. That's just not an option. Um, so what you have to do is like obfuscate that data, right? But you can't prevent people from making guesses with differing levels of confidence. I think you kind of got into that where you said there's like some negligible cryptographic level at that point. Um, but when it comes down to it, like, how does privacy work? Is it just about increasing the noise level so that the cost of finding signal is a lot higher? Because, like, you can't, like, when you say something's, like, private, like, this is private, but it's an open blockchain, so, like, that can be analyzed, and people will make guesses, even if those guesses are bad, right? So, like, how, does, how do you have, a, what model for privacy do you have in your head when it comes to blockchain? So, so I think, I, I just tore is probably the, um, the, the nice go-to example, um, Tor and ICP. If you if you are running um, a router in the Tor network, then or if you're running all the routers in the Tor network, um, then you can see the flow of traffic, and so then there's, there's no privacy. But if um, if the if the vast majority of those routers within the network are run um, by different people, then you can have a fair um, degree of trust that they're not all colluding with each other. And so with Monero, it's the same. Um, if somebody owns 80% of the outputs on the blockchain, then they can, with a fair degree of certainty, know which is the true signer um, in a transaction. They can basically trace all the transactions but earning 80% of the outputs or earning all of the, or the, the majority of the routers in the Tor network is something that is like, it's just such a, it's such a negligible risk that, um, that even a state-based attacker would struggle to, um, to get to that point, no matter how motivated and resourceful they are. So I think, um, I, I think that the, the, the break in transactional flow is pretty solid. And at any rate, the, the main thing that Monero provides, even if that break wasn't massively solid, is it gives you the ability to, uh, it gives you plausible deniability. So, you know, someone can say, uh, oh, you did this transaction, and you can say prove it. And they can't cryptographically speak to prove it. Hmm. 
Yeah, so I mean a lot so privacy in, in a lot of those senses is about um plausible deniability, so like like basically low quality information or like um I mean maybe not just low quality information, but um competing so it, there's like uh this concept of witness in cryptography, but like you know, uh, there's conflicting witnesses to like whatever happened essentially. Um Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. All right, so I think I've probably taken up plenty of your time. I really appreciate you having a, a quick call with me here to talk about these things, and uh, I guess I will you know, see you around in the dojo and in the Bitcoin Monero, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> whatever this cryptocurrency cool. thing Thank is. Thank you very much, Matt. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. All right. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Okay. okay.